listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. It's not often on this podcast that we delve into pop culture moments, but today we're doing just that. You might have heard of Christopher Nolan's latest movie, Oppenheimer. It's sweeping box offices around the globe and tells the story of Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. This bleak look into the history of the weapon has some groups hoping a surge in interest could help progress the topic of nuclear disarmament and shine a light on those who profit from these awful bombs. Today, Keith and I will be discussing the analysis of William Hartung. He's written an article for the website Tom Dispatch. Keith, first off, neither of us have seen the movie, but we know who it's about, Robert Oppenheimer. Who was he and what did he do to gain a place in history? So he was um, a leading scientist, particularly in the emerging area of nuclear physics. And he became, in effect, the chief scientific director of the project. There was also a military person who did all the sort of logistics and the back office, General Groves. So it's a biography of Oppenheimer. It's actually based on a book that was written by Kai Bird a few years back. It's interesting, Christopher Nolan, when he decided to make the movie, his uh, son told him not to bother because there's no interest in the subject. Yeah, right. That's what caught my attention with this particular article because I've grown up with the bomb and it's very much part of my DNA and it's very easy just to take it for granted. Mm. And I think one of the purposes of making the movie was just to give us a good wake-up call and say, look, we've got real problems with these nuclear weapons. They may be off the international political agenda, but they're still around. And in fact, when I think back to when I started talking about nuclear weapons, which was in the mid-1960s, we were then predicting in the mid-1960s that by the year 2000, which seems such an awfully long time away, (laughs) there'd be 30 nuclear weapon countries, including Australia, Canada and Sweden. Now, we've been able to avert some of that through the Non-Proliferation Treaty, but we still have nuclear weapons very much around. And actually, the nuclear weapon states' numbers are increasing. The most obvious one is North Korea, Mm. which is now basically a nuclear weapon state. And, of course, the message that North Korea is sending the world is, look, we're dirt poor, we have so little money, and yet we are still able to create nuclear weapons. And if you want to stand up to the United States, then have nuclear weapons. Because the Americans now will never attack North Korea. I don't think they would ever have done anyway. Mm. But definitely it's guaranteed the protection of North Korea. The worry is there's plenty of scope for things to go wrong, accidents to occur. So for me, the Korean Peninsula remains a nuclear flashpoint. Oppenheimer set in motion the creation of weapons that can cause devastation that's really hard to comprehend. How would the nuclear weapons of today compare to those dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945? Well, the weapons of the size of Hiroshima and Nagasaki don't even figure in nuclear disarmament negotiations. They're regarded as so small. And this is why I think a lot of people have difficulty just comprehending the extent of the danger that the weapons pose to us. They're now just so destructive. Because if you think back, we've had three nuclear explosions in the world. The first one was Trinity in July, which is where they tested the bomb, which is very much 
the centrepiece of the movie. And then you have Hiroshima and Nagasaki, August the 6th and then August the 8th. But all of those were very small compared with what could be made available if there were a full-out nuclear war between the United States and Russia. The article we're discussing talks about humanity's seeming indifference to nuclear weapons, referring to it as psychic numbing. What does that mean? So psychic numbing is a way of trying to explain why nothing is getting done about nuclear weapons. So the phrase comes from an American psychiatrist who said that we're just blind to what's going on. We take it for granted that the weapons are there, very much part of our DNA, but we don't do anything about it, even though... The two main threats to humanity at the moment are nuclear weapons and climate change. If you're driving, I don't know, a fast car and you're coming to the edge of a cliff, if you're the driver, you'd want to avert going over that cliff. Mm. And yet here we are with these two huge threats to humanity and we just ignore them. Mm. And I've seen the rise and fall of the peace movement. I was one of those who spoke at the Central Park rally in New York in June 1982 which is one of the best experiences of my life. And we had hundreds of thousands of people out on the street that day. And yet now, if you look at the marches that take place, they tend to be very small indeed. So the general public just seem to be, well, they're numb to it. Mm. Yeah, it feels like out of sight, out of mind. It's not something that, to me, as someone who's 30 years old, nuclear weapons just seem like a fact of life now because... We've heard about it talked about so often on the news, but it's not in a way of being like, oh, we need to get rid of them. I barely hear those conversations. Are they still happening where people are calling for disarmament? Well, we still have peace groups, you know, here in Sydney, for example, people for nuclear disarmament, which I've been associated for half a century. But you're right, we're not getting much traction. Mm. We're not getting large numbers of people now involved. We have done. Um, Non-governmental organisations sort of rise and fall in terms of, The technical term is issue salience. In other words, a particular issue is top of mind for just a few years. Mm. And then after a while, the general public become accustomed to it and they move on to the next issue. And so with the nuclear issue, I can look back in the early 50s, a bit young for me, but the early 50s, you had the formation of the campaign for nuclear disarmament for which Christopher Nolan pays tribute. So you, you get that at those early marches, they then fade away, and particularly with the agreement over the partial test ban treaty, which stopped certain nuclear testing, not all of them, but some of them, particularly that which put radioactivity into the atmosphere. Mm. That was 1963. From 1963 onwards, it goes into decline, picks up again in 1979 when there's speculation about a limited nuclear war. When I was in the United States in 1978, the United Nations' first special session on disarmament, it coincided with the publication of the US Postal Service, a very venerable service, older than the Republic itself, Mm. which explained how it intended to deliver parcels and letters in the event of a nuclear war. (laughs) (laughs) So we were then talking about this limited nuclear war, intermediate nuclear force weapons, which were short-range weapons. The theory is that you'd have a war in Europe, which would wipe out most of Europe, and much of the Soviet Union, and about 10% of the United States. Mm-hmm. So the US Postal Service had to work out how to deliver mail to 90% of the survivors. <laughs> Just crazy. Insane. Um, and then, of course, we get Mikhail Gorbachev coming along in the Soviet Union, who just simply says, this is madness. We can't afford to keep running the arms race. 
And Reagan, to his credit, sees a window of opportunity. Reagan then says, well, perhaps we can work towards banning these intermediate nuclear force short-range nuclear missiles. And so we get the INF agreement, which is actually the first disarmament agreement in world history. And that was Reagan and Gorbachev. So you get an improvement there, but then it all falls down away. The general public later on become concerned about climate change and the rest of it, and they go into other issues. And I think what Christopher Nolan is hoping to do is to trigger another anti-nuclear wave with this movie. I'm not sure that you can do it with just one movie. Certainly movies do have a social impact. Mm. Back in 1979, 78, there was Jonathan Schell's book called Fate of the Earth, which looked at what would happen in the event of a so-called limited nuclear war. Uh, General John Hackett wrote a book called World War Three, which set out how it actually take place in August of 1985. Wow. So there were books out that, that got people thinking about the issue, and obviously this movie, this time around, may well help people to start thinking about the issue. But it's something which is, as you said, you've grown up with it, you're psychically numb. You're the sort of person that the psychologist is talking about. <laughs> I don't want to be. It's, um, <laughs> I guess, you know, for me, I feel lucky I'm engaged in what's happening in the world, but there are a lot of people my age who aren't. Um, and, you know, they, you would just think nuclear weaponry is normal and without any critical thinking of what it actually is. I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned the US, Korea, North Korea, obviously, and Russia, but who else currently has nuclear weapons? So we have what are called the Big Five, which are the permanent members of the UN Security Council. Coincidentally, they're also the nuclear weapon states. There you go. There's no direct linkage between UN Security Council permanent membership and nuclear weapons. So that's the United States, Russia, United Kingdom, France, and China. Mm. And then on top of that, you've got other countries, Israel, which never claims to be a nuclear weapon state, but we all know that it is. Yeah. Uh, you've got India and Pakistan, and now you've got North Korea. Mm. And you've got other countries that in the past have expressed nuclear ambitions, Libya in North Africa and South Africa. South Africa may well have carried out a nuclear test, I think in about 1979, out in the Atlantic. So there have been some other countries with nuclear ambition. But given the success of this nuclear non-proliferation treaty, it's really put a bit of a lid on that arms race. So Australia, um, we've really got to look at how Australia got into this because there was a time when we were going to get nuclear weapons rather than signing up to these UN treaties. Wow. The UN created this non-proliferation treaty and eventually, eventually, grudgingly, <laughs> Australia signed up to it. But by doing so, we were saying to Indonesia, our nearest neighbour, we've signed up to this. Don't worry, we're not going to acquire nuclear weapons. And Indonesia said, well, we'll sign up as well. And that's a message of reassurance for Malaysia, Singapore. And so you work up. So we often talk about the arms race proceeding with one country rivaling against another. But peace can also break out with one country doing the right thing yeah. and then the next country saying, well, we'll follow your example. Mm. So this area has been reasonably safe when it comes to nuclear weapons. The problem now is, of course, the use of nuclear-powered submarines. They're not nuclear-armed. We're not going to be violating the NPT, strictly speaking, but a lot of us have got doubts about the AUKUS agreement for a number of reasons, including introducing nuclear-powered submarines into the Australian Navy.
You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the potential impacts the film Oppenheimer could have on how we view nuclear weapons. Keith, I'd like to talk now about who's profiteering or profiting from nuclear weapons. Can you give us some insight there? Yes, so this is uh, basically what uh, this fellow, William Hartong, who's written a lot about the economics of the arms race, and so I've been familiar with his work because that was my second PhD was on the economics of the arms race. And what he's doing is looking at how you've now got a very big constituency within the United States in favour of continuing with nuclear weapons. So even if you had another John Kennedy in the White House, he was the one responsible for the partial test ban treaty five months before he was shot dead. The problem would be that you could have somebody in the White House, but you'd be up against all these lobby groups that have been going on. So during World War II, which is explored in the Oppenheimer movie, you get this so-called Manhattan Project, which is the building of the nuclear bombs. And during the war, 130,000 workers overall were employed. Huge project. And that was the equivalent number of the total number of people at that time working in the U.S. automobile industry. Wow. So it was a really major undertaking. Mm. And then at the end of World War II, a lot of those companies decided they would continue to operate. And so there are some that are quite well known, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin. So you've got a number of corporations that make money out of building nuclear weapons. Mm. They're not necessarily violent people. They're not nasty people. They just want to make money. And you, you want weapons? We'll build them for you. It's, it's really as simple as that. And so you've got this very active arms lobby who finance major political candidates, have an influence within the media, etc. This makes it very difficult to try to reverse it. Now, in my second PhD, I talked about a peace industrial complex to reply to the military industrial complex. So this is the outworking of the military industrial complex. So you've got this link between the corporations and the building of weapons for the military, etc., But I've also argued in my second PhD that we could create a parallel peace industrial complex, which would consist of obviously the general public, non-governmental organizations, and also companies that benefit from not having wars. My favorite example is the widow of Ray Kroc, who's founded McDonald's. And her view was that in the event of World War III, no one will be buying hamburgers. (laughs) So you get uh, these croc peace research centres on a number of American campuses. Wow. And and Helen Caldicott, who's an Australian peace campaigner, Mm -hmm. also has received money from uh, croc. So there you've got people who have an interest in there not being war Mm. and preparations in war. Now, this would require the peace movement undergoing a huge paradigm shift in being willing to work with big business, and they were not able to do that. It's a pity because it makes sense, I, and the goal is the same, I guess. It is, exactly. Technically, Technically peace, yeah. peace on earth means hamburgers. Yeah. means we don't die in a nuclear war. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it, for me, it was disappointing. I, I wrote that, golly, almost 30 years ago now, I think, mm. uh, the, the, about the peace industrial complex. It's summarised on Wikipedia, but never really got traction. Unfortunately, as this article points out, you've got a lot of big American companies that make a lot of money out of building nuclear weapons. 
there are a lot of groups as well involved in trying to promote a slowdown or disarmament altogether. Who are they and what are they hoping for in the wake of the film Oppenheimer? Well, I'm hoping that they'll be able to exploit it. I'm not directly involved in the day-to-day running of the groups, so I'm not sure to what extent they're going to be exploiting it. I think there is plenty of opportunity if they felt like doing that. And at the moment, we've got a very good target that you could aim towards, which is the ratification of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, Mm. which all five nuclear weapon states have said they're not going to sign. Surprise. And Australia will not sign, although we've got a Labor government that says, oh, we're thinking about it. But Australia has the view, well, we're reliant upon the Americans for END, which is extended nuclear deterrence. It'll be hypocritical of us to ratify that treaty. They promised that they would do so, so I don't want to be totally dismissive of Labor, Mm. but they're taking an awfully long while to getting round to it. What would that treaty mean in practice? Getting rid of nuclear weapons. Full stop, that's it. They're all gone. Yeah, Yeah, okay. I think it's a great start. And they're using the same technique that we used with landmines in which, you know, Her Royal Highness Princess of Wales got involved, Princess Diana. So that was a campaign that was blocked at the United Nations by the big users of landmines, particularly the United States and Soviet Union, Russia. So we worked around them and created this treaty outside of that standard negotiating format. And we've got a number of countries have signed on to it. It's a bit like the Cluster Munitions Treaty as well. And, of course, the landmines issue and cluster munitions very much top of mind because of the Ukraine. Ukraine didn't accept the treaties. Russia didn't and neither did the United States. But 100, I think 110 countries have done so. It's just over the majority of the world's mm. countries. Mm. Um, the author says in closing of this article, we need to abolish nuclear weapons before they abolish us. Do you agree with that sentiment? I have a feeling I know your answer. Uh, and will we ever see it happen? It feels like it's impossible. I know. This, um, well, obviously I do agree with the statement, and that's what I've been talking about for the last few decades. It's going to be difficult to imagine a world without nuclear weapons, but if we were a 1,000 years ago and we were talking about bows and arrows, you could have put that question to me. Mm. My view would be, well, just so important. And yet they got superseded by new technology. Mm. So there is always that chance that new technology will come along for one reason or another and make the weapons unnecessary in the same way that we don't use knights on horses. You know, these technologies do get superseded and you get new things moving in. So I think it is theoretically possible to live without nuclear weapons. It's interesting that as we search for intelligent life throughout the universe, we, don't, we are not finding it. And is there a problem that perhaps all societies go through an evolution and ultimately end up inventing nuclear weapons and then destroy themselves? In which case, we will never communicate with intelligent life. They've already destroyed themselves and in due course, so will we. That's a grim thought to leave us with, but a thought-provoking one. Thank you, Dr Keith, for your time. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolich.